Welcome everybody. Uh, welcome to this retreat, to this course, whether you're uh, to those here in the room tonight or if you're listening at home to the teachings, offerings. A uh, very warm welcome. Both Catherine and I would like to each speak a little bit um, to introduce the retreat, to um, get our bearings um, and get the ball rolling. So I'd just like to speak um, uh, a little bit now and really to cover four areas or to to begin to go into four areas. the what, what are we talking about when we talk about re-enchantment and the poetry of perception? What, what, what is meant by that? So I'll say a little bit tonight about these four areas and they're also um, things that we'll come back to and fill out much more. So just touching on them tonight by way of introduction. Um, but as the course goes on, we'll fill them out more. So what do we mean by re-enchantment? What are we talking about? What are we pointing to? Uh, secondly, why? Why is this important? Um, why offer a retreat like this? And these kind of practices, these kind of teachings. Uh, thirdly, the um, a little bit, just a little bit tonight about the context of the retreat, the context um, of these teachings, and also the bases, like what forms the bases. Uh, uh, what are the bases for, for these offerings, for these teachings? Um, so what, why, context and bases. And lastly, a little bit about uh, just some pointers or maybe suggestions, offerings about how to relate to this retreat, how to relate to the practices and the teachings. Like I said, we'll touch on this now, and uh, these are themes that we'll return to fill in uh, elaborate as the week goes by. <clears throat> and just a reminder, um, or a statement at least, that that um, the content of this retreat, that both the themes and the practices and, and the orientations, um, in a way um, emerge for me organically um, uh, out of as an organic expression or extension, really, of teachings that both both Catherine and I separately have been um, giving in the last few years. Um, if you like, some of it is 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 an elaboration of that, an explore, further exploration of those things. Some of it is slowing um, aspects of those uh, previous teachings down and filling them out a little more. And as we uh, hopefully have made clear, we're assuming a familiarity for you on your part. We're assuming a familiarity. This is what we asked for. And by familiarity, I mean an understanding, uh, conceptual understanding, but also a meditative facility, like an ability, skill, art in the meditation. So we're assuming a familiarity with, certainly with all the usual insight meditation teachings that, that, uh, that we're familiar with that are very common these days, but also with um, teachings and practices uh, related to the imaginal. And also emptiness, and by emptiness I mean also in quite a particular way of approaching it that has to do with the uh, fundamentality of uh, the concept of ways of looking, practicing different ways of looking on the one hand, and also uh, the concept of fabrication and the fabrication of perception. So emptiness from that avenue and, and, and going deeper and deeper into uh, the, the richness and the fullness and the fruits of uh, using those concepts of ways of looking at fabrication. So I'm assuming some understanding at least and some meditative facility with that. The deeper uh, that understanding and skill with emptiness in particular, the easier all this is. Um, all this talk of imaginal and enchantment and cosmopoesis that we'll be going into, um, it's almost, it follows naturally and very organically um, and becomes, as I say, much more easy, much more obvious in a way, much more accessible the deeper our um, understanding and practice uh, with emptiness is. 
Um, so assuming some familiarity with the imaginal and with emptiness practice, but also some uh, meditative skill, uh, working uh, with one's emotional life, both difficult and lovely, um, some skill too with samadhi, samatha, um, uh, the, the, the resource of well-being in the body and mind, and also with practices like metta and loving-kindness. It's quite a lot we're assuming familiarity with. And all of these, uh, especially the last three, the, the skill with the emotions, the samatha and the metta, um, all, again, we're orienting uh, around, that, um, around those practices uh, using the energy body as um, a kind of foundation, as a vehicle, if you like, for developing those skills and practices. So we're assuming all that. I don't know how much the material in this retreat will make sense um, without that familiarity. It may to some people, but for others, um, it, it really may not. Uh, personally, I'm not going to repeat um, much of those kind of teachings uh, at all, because we've asked for this, uh, for those uh, foundations to be there and that familiarity to be there. So on this retreat, I won't be repeating much, except um, things or teachings or concepts or points that, in my experience teaching, that, that actually tend not to land with people. People hear them or actually don't hear them. Uh, it just kind of goes in one ear and out the other. They don't seem to see the significance of them or how radical they are, how much they change um, the whole basis and the whole fabric, tenor and orientation and possibilities of what's happening. So those, those things I might repeat. Um, one example would, would be, and this is something we'll touch on uh, as, as time goes by, is what does it mean to have emptiness uh, as a basis for the whole path? Not as a goal, not as some distant thing, not certainly not as some option later, but some understanding, some deepening understanding of emptiness as the basis. So putting the whole path uh, and the whole conception of anything to do with the Dharma on the basis of this understanding of the flexibility and availability of ways of looking and the notion of fabrication of perception, those two interwoven concepts. Something that's so important, makes such a difference, and yet uh, A, is extremely rare, and B, uh, it's quite often that people really don't hear that or see the, understand yet the significance of it. It doesn't really land as a sort of um, root and fundamental uh, concept, a, a ground for what we're doing. Okay, but let's, let's uh, get into these four areas that I wanted to talk about. So the first is the what. What are we talking about here when we talk about re-enchantment and all that? So I found an article in the Guardian newspaper uh, a few months ago and that might help us uh, highlight some of what, what we're talking about and also make some differentiation. So it's written by a guy called David Ferguson. I don't know who he is, um, but it was in the Guardian set a few, a few months ago. Um, so I'm just going to read you some of that. Uh, it was an article about trees in cities. And, um, and so he says, Scientists say that when human beings see the color green and interact with nature, our bodies manifest chemical and psychological signs of reduced stress. One Texas company is trying to quantify, to calculate for cities, uh, the dollar amounts that trees are worth in their combined capacities as air scrubbers, noise pollution reducers, neighborhood beautifiers, and natural stress relievers. And uh, less cortisol, which is a stress hormone, is given off when you see green, said iTree founder, that's i-tree, iTree founder David Nowak who continues, we want to develop an index of how much green you can see from any given point in a city, how your body reacts to it, and what the economic value is. <clears throat> Interesting. 
Uh, and then David Ferguson continues and points out how trees uh, make the uh, climate cooler in the, in the city. They cool the city down. Uh, they uh, absorb pollution, so making it less polluted, so there are less respiratory problems for city dwellers, etc., commuters, all that. But then he says, David Ferguson says, all of that aside, and as well-intentioned as NOAC may be, there is something absolutely unquantifiable about the benefits of living near trees. And he continues, I love to visit New York City and London, and he named some other cities that he liked. But after about a week or so, all the noise and grimness and the grey concrete all start to get to me. I begin to ache to run loose in the woods like when I was a kid, in the long free hours between the end of school and dinner. It must be US school where they finish school much earlier than in the UK. Um, Back then, I learned to tell time by the angle of sunlight slanting through the pines. I can still smell rain 24 hours before it comes in the soil around their roots. And he, he goes on, maybe it's that trees live longer than we do. Maybe it's that nothing ever seems to bother them enough to make them yank up their roots and leave. But even now, as an adult, there are times when my thinking gets too sped up and scrambled, and I need to wander in the woods, into the woods behind my house, shimmy up a tree and sit in its branches. Up there, I can slow down my ricocheting mind, breathe in that sweet green smell, and just think long, slow thoughts. And then he finishes, I challenge all the legions of bean-counting accountants in the world to put a dollar value to that. I don't think you can. Okay, so why am I picking on this um, article, or picking this article to share? Uh, I, I really feel he makes some very necessary and good points, David Ferguson, and I don't want to take anything away from what he wrote. But I want to ask both what is hidden within what he's saying and what is missing. What is hidden within it and what is missing from uh, what he wrote. So this is by way of, not by way of criticism, but critique. Critique means asking questions like that. What's hidden? Uh, what assumptions and orientations are hidden and what is missing there? It's not about criticism, it's critique. So first thing is, notice for him and the way he talks, uh, both David Nowak and David Ferguson, um, the way he talks, uh, there's, a, there's a kind of recourse to basically modernist values and cosmologies. So the values that he presents and that he highlights, and also the cosmologies, the way of um, assuming or perceiving what the world is, uh, are quite modernist. They're quite, we take them just completely for granted. They're part of our culture. So, in terms of the values, there is an appeal in what he writes, and the kind of sweetness of it. There's an appeal to the idyllic memories of childhood, and both uh, this need for and desire for less stress, for uh, not working. Um, there's a kind of idealization and nostalgia of childhood, um, and of not having time pressure, and the whole um, uh, orientation of slowing down one's thoughts, etc., et that he talks about. So these are very familiar. They sound so familiar, and maybe they're so appealing, just because we're saturated with those kind of values in our society. They're very modern, modernist values, if you like. They belong to our society uh, at the moment. Um, but secondly, with the cosmology... Notice uh, the absolute absence of what we might call um, any dimensionality or depth to the whole perception and conception of nature, of trees, or cosmos. So, in what David Ferguson writes about what's important to him, there's an appeal to what we could call the, 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 the purely or the flatly sensual. So, uh, nowhere involved at all in what he says, or even hinted at, is any kind of um, uh, sense of nature being anything more than material and pleasantly sensual or helpful. 
depth and dimensionality, and I'm, we're going to speak a lot, uh, hopefully, about about what this might mean for us, um, is is just absent from the discourse uh, of both Davids there. Um, when on this retreat we talk about reenchantment, uh, that they, reenchantment needs to have that aspect. Uh, need, needs to involve and invoke depth and dimensionality. And we'll talk, as I said, more about what that means. So any kind of re-enchantment without depth and dimension cannot really be very full or deep at all, as far as, as, far as what we're talking about is concerned. Now, following on from all that, notice the parallels. I'm not going to say much about this now, but just notice the parallels in both what the iTree founder, David Novak, the sort of measurement uh, party of, of the two, uh, in both what he says and also in the kind of uh, claims of unquantifiability as far as David Ferguson took them. Notice the parallels between all that and the way they speak and write with the dominant paradigms, or what have become the dominant paradigms in a lot of um, meditation circles and mindfulness teachings. Health, less stress, slowing down thoughts, etc. The idealization of um, simplicity, all of that, uh, childhood simplicity, whatever, a kind of innocence of, of all that. Notice the parallels. Okay, I'm not going to say m- more about that at this point. And again, related to all this, we can, and again, something we'll return to uh, periodically in the retreat, is what we could call the creep of, uh, since the scientific revolution, the creep of what we might call scientism, or what is called scientism. Not science, but scientism. What's that? Scientism uh, is a kind of religion, really, um, including the belief that... uh, Science can eventually, or will eventually, explain everything. Everything there is to know about life can, will, will be, or can be eventually explained, uh, either already or eventually, by, by science. And that science is the truest, best, and most trustworthy explanation of anything. Also in, involved in this kind of religion of scientism, um, of scientistic belief, if you like, is that science deals with what is ultimately true and deals in real entities, entities that are real. Um, again, part of scientism is that uh, is, is, is something very central about measure, measurement and including the measurement of value. So actually, a lot of what David Ferguson claims is not quantifiable. I think some scientists will say, actually, we can measure values uh, now we can in different ways. Um, but this measurement is very intrinsic to scientific belief, the importance of measurement, the necessity of measurement. The measurement and and value then get uh, put together so that something is actually only valued if it is measurable. And preferably, if it's measurable, if it's physical, uh, then it's taken as real, and um, preferably if it's physically measurable. So we can, uh, scientists can measure values uh, by um, uh, giving people questionnaires and, 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 and uh, about their values, about their feelings, about things. But much better from this point of view is if we can find neuronal changes to measure or biochemical measures to change, as I say, cortisol levels and all this. Uh, uh, and those measurable benefits then constitute more scientific evidence. Uh, so all this and more um, is wrapped up in, in scientism and in a way... Uh, the article, the debate in the article, really highlights um, uh, indirectly some of some of that coming through. Lastly, just about this, um, she doesn't mention reenchantment. It's not really uh, a, a notion that's in the certainly the word. Not, not the notion is not in in the article. But what what would it be then to reenchant the city? 
Um, do we need necessarily a sort of return to nature? Do we need to kind of demolish or abolish cities? Um, or it, does the re-enchantment of the city come only by having more greenery and trees? So, central to our theme, what, theme, what might re-enchantment mean and involve? So when he points out in the article how he begins to feel a week or so after he's been in New York or London or whatever it is, um, he's actually uh, expressing and sharing a kind of sensitivity uh, of attention uh, to his surroundings and to what he's perceiving. So this is actually quite central to uh, the practices and the orientations that we're going to be developing. Because it's in developing a subtlety of awareness and attention, a sensitivity, is so much a part, a dimension, an aspect for me, if I think about it, of developing, growing, and deepening in meditation practice. I'll say this again uh, later and re-emphasize it. The subtlety and sensitivity are almost more than anything more than mindfulness or concentration or this or that or quietening the mind, subtlety and sensitivity are really uh, core and integral to develop, developing, growing and deepening a meditation practice. So in relation to what he's talking about, can we notice more and more subtly the energetic, psychic and emotional effects in the moment of what we encounter in the world through the senses? As always with these things, there's a spectrum of subtlety uh, pertaining to uh, what we can notice of uh, the effects on us, on our being. Um, More or less gross, relatively obvious, or more subtle in terms of what we can feel and observe in, in the effects that are palpable. <clears throat> on the emotions, on the energy body, etc. For example, at the more gross end, what happens, how does it affect us? And the emotions, the energy body, the being, when we see directly or in pictures vast swathes of land devastated or devastated and polluted by tar sands, oil extraction. You feel the effect of that on the being. Or when we witness a great expanse of of clear-cut forest. Or just litter, everyday litter, whether it's in the city or in the countryside. Noticing these effects, some quite palpable, quite obvious. Or when we are (coughs) uh, in in a place of uh, more pristine nature, or even a, a photograph of more pristine nature whatever it is, grass, trees, um, different effect on the being, the effect of, also the different effects of open spaces, desert or plains or whatever it is, mountains, and uh, more closed spaces like woods. And then more subtly, you know, possible perhaps to notice the different effects on us of different materials um, for example in the city that we see or encounter so um, encountering concrete versus stone versus steel or plastic versus wood this is happening all the time, of course, when this, when we're moving around, the senses are open, but uh, actually there's uh, noticeably different effects in the heart, in the resonances, in the soul, in the energy body. And uh, part of this subtlety sensitivity is, is uh, that we're developing, that can be developed, is, is to, to notice all that. This is actually palpable, on, a, on certainly on the gross levels, but also on a very, very subtle level. How we are, how the being is affected by what it perceives. It always is, and it has to be. But because of that, it opens up this possibility uh, and recognition that how I'm affected 
also depends not just on the material of what I see, of the perception, but it actually depends on the way of looking, um, which opens up the door to the fact that re-enchanting the world is partly, maybe even mostly, I don't know, um, in the way of looking, in this flexibility of ways of looking, in the exercise of skill and art and the poetry of, of ways of looking. Let's explore some of this a bit more. When we use that word enchantment, you know, I'm aware, um, Catherine and I talked about it before the retreat, but that word can have so many different meanings and implications for people. Um, people use it in different ways, etc. So we were talking um, and before, and we thought, well, we can at least delineate four kinds of enchantment, uh, at least for us right now. I'm sure there are more. And one we could call a kind of for want of a better term, there probably is a better term, we could call immature enchantment. And that's a kind of, uh, when we're a little bit um, obsessed with something, but also with the self in relationship to that something. Uh, we can tell an immature enchantment, enchantment with something or someone because the mind and the being contract around that thing, or in reaction to that thing, um, there's clinging, a kind of gross level of clinging involved. Something closes in the psyche. You could say the psyche, the, the, um, the range of the psyche closes. Uh, something is also reified, made real. Okay? Uh, there's a kind of realist belief wrapped up in there. Um, and the self is more important than the divine. Again, this is something we're going to come back to. The self and uh, the intentionality, the orientation of the whole um, enchantment. In, in, in the orientation and intentionality of the enchantment, the self actually has more importance and there's more focus on it than the divine. We'll fill that out. So that's the first kind of enchantment, immature enchantment. Second kind we might call cultural enchantment. Um, and this is, for instance, um, something like our enchantment with um, science and technology, um, which in themselves, of course, are, are extremely useful. But there's something in the way that we're a little bit blind not just to the effects, but also to the assumptions um, that are operating there. We don't realize that we're trapped in certain views, certain quite narrow views. If you like, that we're kind of captive, just as we are in an immature enchantment, we're kind of captive within an enchantment. Then there are two kinds of what we could call very um, positive uh, in enchantments. One is, if you like, the enchantment uh, a kind of spiritual enchantment, um, but that has a universal or impersonal uh, uh, orientation or um, basis. Um, so, for example, um, someone doing meta practice um, after a while and really deepening and opening, and they begin to experience a sense of kind of cosmic love or cosmic compassion. It's, it's a quality that's woven into the fabric and the space of, of the cosmos, of the universe. And there's a love of that. There's an enchantment with that perception and also with the capability of opening to that perception. But that love is universal and impersonal. And also in that, one's own personality, if you like, gets a little dissolved. As it goes deeper, we start to see... I am not separate from this love. I am this love. It imbues me. It's my fabric as much as else, as much as uh, everything else is. So everything, self, other, world, things, nature, all kind of get their uniqueness in a way, gets dissolved because their true nature in this perception is universal love, an impersonal universal love. The same thing could happen with awareness, person doing different practices where awareness is kind of central, then there's this beautiful opening, mystical, precious openings to a universal awareness. And give it different names and it comes in different flavors, etc. But again, there's a dissolution um, into the impersonal. There's an enchantment with that. Beautiful, 
um, necessary, I think, on the path. Um, lovely, healing, all of that. But then there's a fourth kind of enchantment, and this is the one that we're mostly emphasizing and focusing on on this retreat. This is the one that we want to nourish and uh, stoke the fires of on this retreat, partly because it's less talked about, less encouraged. And that is, again, for want of better words, a kind of mature enchantment that involves the imaginal. So it involves... um, Images and, and, and the use of the imagination, but also this um, implied in all that is the sense of um, what we are perceiving and what we are enchanted with, um, whether that's the whole of existence or some particular aspect of self or other or whatever, is not perceived and conceived as one-dimensional, as flat. There is a vertical dimensionality of uh, to, to it. There's a plurality of dimensions there, multidimensional. There are levels, if you like, uh, to perception. And wrapped up with that, there's a sense of divinity. Somehow there's a sense of the um, divinity of what we are enchanted with. I'm going to come back to this because I know it's a loaded concept for some people. And then also there's a wisdom aspect to this, that we have used this phrase before, see image as image. This is an image. Uh, And with everything uh, that that means and that implies, um, we're not reifying, we're not lost in the image that way. That's all these aspects are necessary, the imaginal, the non-flatness, the, the dimension, multidimensionality, the verticality, the divinity, and the wisdom that sees image as image. All that is necessary to this um, kind of enchantment that we're emphasizing on this retreat. It's a mature, if you like, but involving the imaginal. Now, actually, in experience, in practice, these four kinds, um, they arise in mixtures. You know, So I might have a mature... Uh, enchantment involving imaginal going on, but there's some perhaps immature enchantment wrapped up in that. I'm not quite free of the the clinging or the contraction that goes with a certain amount of reification or belief or whatever, or it's wrapped up with a cultural enchantment or, or the more spiritual enchantment of universality, etc. So really, we could talk about a, a continuum of degrees of involvement of these different kinds of enchantment. But all of them, um, uh, well, at least the last two, at least, um, the, the, what we're calling the positive ones, um, they lead to, uh, if you like, different kinds and directions of opening. And that's why I'm highlighting this, partly. Different kinds of um, opening to, to beauty, different kinds of beauty different kinds of meaningfulness, different kinds of sense of sacredness, and different kinds and directions of soul-making. So the kind of enchantment um, leads and opens up in different directions. Uh, And these um, lead to and bring with them different kinds of freedom different kinds of freedom. So freedom is not a uh, a simple sort of monolith. It's different kinds of freedom. And each kind of enchantment, direction enchantment, brings different kinds of freedom. And also different kinds of knowing are made available. Again, these are are concepts we're going to come back to. You know, just a brief example. Someone was asking me, you know, with my health situation right now and being very ill, and uh, the, you know, the possibility of, uh, of of a death, an early death, and not not too uh, not too far away, pos- possible, you know. Um, and asked me about that because I had said something or written something about um, how even that was perfect. So this idea of perfection, for in, in, as an illustration of what I was just talking about, that something like that, a circumstance like that, um, can be 
uh, felt and seen and perceived as perfect from one perspective, which is that all is one. All is one cosmic awareness, or all is one cosmic love, or whatever. So even this illness, and even this death, it is one. But there, there is the, if you like, the spiritual um, uh, perception there, the, which sees the universality. So everything, no matter whether it's good, bad, ugly, beautiful, it's all, it all has the, the one taste, the characteristic of this one. It's, it's true in nature is this one, whatever the one is. Um, and then you can have different kinds of one depending on your perception. So that's you know, beautiful and so helpful you know, as, a, as, a, as a perception that's available and cultivatable um, through practice. Mystical, spiritual perceptions available through practice. Um, James Hillman talks about distinguishing spirit from soul. So I'm not too keen on that, uh, dis- making them separate things. But we could call that more spiritual. In contradistinction to what we might call a soul knowing. Uh, that has to do with uh, amor fati, the love of one's fate or one's destiny. Um, in and including all the particulars of the events that happen to me, the way they happen, all the particulars of my unique personhood, of my life. So in this soul knowing, in this soul uh, perception that opens up that's possible, there's a kind of, um, let's call it perception, we could say recognition of, if you like, my soul's coherence with divinity, Um, or rather with a divine intelligence, with the world soul, in and through the events and the particularities and the uniqueness of my personhood and and my life. Um, So it's important to differentiate these kinds, but I don't want to separate them as as, uh, Hillman tended to do, um, this spiritual and soul, but, but it's important differentiation there. So again, just to recap um, what I said before about what's essential, if you like, uh, and integral to the kinds of enchantment that we want to uh, feed on this retreat and talk about on this retreat. So there's this um, non-flatness to the perception, to the sense and the conception of things. Um, the idea that's so prevalent in, in, in modernist conception and perception Everything is just matter. So whatever arises, arises um, from the interaction and combination of atoms or, or whatever, and eventually gives rise to consciousness and human beings, etc. But essentially, everything is just matter. That would be the typical modernist um, say sense and conception of things. So what we want is not that kind of flatness, not that kind of unidimensionality of everything is matter. Uh, things only differ in their sort of hierarchy of the, the complexity of the organization of that matter. Not flat and unflattening. And wrapped up in that or with that is some uh, sense of divinity and some conception of divinity. Even, and this is again something we'll come back to, but even if that, that sense and conception is, is very vague, very nebulous uh, of what divinity means. But it has to be there because in an imaginal-based enchantment, um, the imaginal, uh, at least what I mean by imaginal, already um, needs to include a sense of depth and divinity to the images and the fantasies and to their origins. In other words, we recognize somehow, or we conceive somehow, of their origins, that these images have their origins and roots in divinity. But all this, or none of this, is a matter of belief. We don't want you to believe anything. I don't want to sell this to you as a belief, and certainly not as a dogma. So what are we talking about when we talk about enchantment without belief? We're talking, if you like, about a poetic state, what we could call a poetic state. A state, a a stance, an attitude of poesis, which means a creative Uh, making, an artistic creation, an attitude of artistic creation with respect to the self, to others, to the cosmos, 
to the chitta, the mind, the heart, the psyche, the soul, uh, to, to being and existence itself. So this enchantment really means, enchanting really means a poetic state, inhabiting a poetic state, a state, an attitude of poesis. It's dynamic, open, creative. We're not talking about something static, and we're not talking about something for which um, there's really, uh, it's, it's not formulaic, there are not prescriptions here, apart from the most general ones that we, that we talked about just now. It's more like an art, and that's something we're going to come back to, this idea of the art of it all. That word cosmos, uh, actually is a Greek word, and it's related to our word cosmetic, which um, uh, indicates really what the connotations of the word originally, as opposed to universe. Um, it has an aesthetic connotation, this word cosmos, originally, to do with ordering and forming and fashioning, to do with um, ornaments and decoration. Uh, in other words, it's creative, it's artistic, it has to do with beauty. And in our practice, what we're endeavoring to do is to move in and out of this poetic state, whether it's deliberately moving in and out or spontaneously. So there's a movement in and out of this state of poesis or states of poesis. Now in relation to all that, um, doubt arises. Almost certainly for everyone, uh, most people at least, doubt arises uh, regarding notions of reality regarding the the status and the trustworthiness of images, regarding um, uh, the whole idea of having conceptual frameworks that are non-realist, that are not assuming reality or truth about what they conceive or or perceive, about doubts about um, employing ways of looking that are not scientifically endorsed, or even worse, ways of knowing, if we use that. We know things in ways that are not scientifically uh, respectable at the moment. So doubt around all these things, I would expect it uh, that it comes up for you. And actually I would say it's a good sign. It shows that the being is, if you like, engaged with all this, with these ideas, with these practices. Um, It shows that you're not just believing something in a kind of naive way. Um, or, as is actually somewhat popular, trying to return to a kind of primitivism, as if the the solution to all our crises now is to just have everyone go back to living in some kind of prehistoric way. That, you know, primitivism, it's not ours. Um, After modernity, after the Western Enlightenment, after the scientific revolution, after this emphasis on or, or belief in or, or, or of, of being able to know objectively the knowing must be removed the knower must be independent of the known or the, the sorry the known must be independent of the knower after all that and our culture is so saturated in all that um, we need to kind of uh, we can't just turn the clock back somehow have to absorb all that and move beyond it forwards. But doubt is going to be a part of that process. Not for everyone, but for, for a lot of people. And that's, that's fine and it's important. And related to all that, you know, and, and the teachings, um, to say something also which is maybe a little bit different from probably what many of us are used to in teaching and hearing teachings and reading teachings, is that a lot of the way we will use words um, could be said, we're using them more poetically. Um, So words like soul, or divine, or God, or even enchantment, and other words like that, we're using them poetically, if you like, as a different way of using words. We're using them primarily to stimulate soul-making and stimulate cosmopoesis, this transformation of the creative transformation in the perception of the world, cosmopoesis. 
Um, so we're using words in order to stimulate soul-making commonplaces, not, not just for you, but also for, for us, for Catherine and I. Um, we're not just using words in this kind of um, clar- in their kind of clarificatory uh, capacity. So here, in this kind of teaching, we don't gain that much, really, in a lot of cases, we don't gain anything from tight, neat definitions. Certain differentiations will be absolutely necessary, they are necessary, and we might uh, at times say, um, when I use that word, I definitely don't mean this, or I don't mean that, to kind of steer us away from certain well-trodden and not-so-helpful paths in this context. And certainly we might make certain suggestions of what a word might open up in experience and concept. But this is this kind of um, teaching and, and the way of approach is, is nothing, it's not Abhidhamma, if you know those teachings. Sometimes people get uh, so pleased and self-congratulatory when they can kind of de- define things very neatly and tightly. And there's a kind of illusion, really, of understanding something. Okay, I've put everything in a box, um, but how helpful is that? I mean, occasionally it's helpful, but uh, and I think I've understood, and it's all very neat and, and great, but really, how often is that actually just an illusion that something has been understood and that something is helpful? It's quite a rare uh, wisdom in regard to practice to actually know, to have a nose for, to sense, to intuit what is actually helpful in all this availability of teachings and information and concepts and practices. What is actually helpful? What is really important and what is very much secondary? And, and what leads where? This is quite a big thing in, in, in a, a huge chunk of wisdom and it's actually quite a rare one. So we're using words as I said, poetically, um, to, to to encourage certain kinds of opening, um, we're not uh, basing it like Abhidhamma on a kind of realist um, assumptions. This is this, and that's that, and that's really this, and that's really that, and etc. So these things, we're not dealing in the realm of truth or reality, we're dealing in the realm of poetry. Now, with or within that state of poesis that we talked about, um, integral to that, unavoidably within that, um, we are entertaining and experimenting with ideas, conceptions, some of which are actually theologies, if you like, if you want to use that word, and those kinds of things. But the conceptual framework, or the logos, I'll be using that word, conceptual framework, or the logos, um, that we entertain is dynamic, is elastic, it can stretch. Again, this is something we're not really used to in our way of approaching things and our way of thinking. So sometimes uh, will the concepts will be making very fine discriminations, very subtle uh, discriminations between different aspects or dimensions or this or that directions. And sometimes the concept conceptual framework will be much more nebulous, much more kind of cloudy and vague. Sometimes it will be very logical and sometimes much more poetic. Sometimes it will precisely circumscribe a certain area and other times it will be much more open. It's almost like I can't really find the edge of this concept. But always, always, always the conceptual framework, the logos, will be needs to be and will be connected with experience and connected with what we might call phenomenological, our phenomenological investigations, our investigations and our experimenting with, our practicing with experience and different ways of looking. Always the ideas and the concepts are connected to that. We're not talking uh, as abstract philosophy, abstract meaning removed from that, from experience, removed from that, the possibility of actual investigation. We're not talking about theoretics that's removed. Sometimes when people have very tight um, conceptual frameworks that either explicitly or implicitly, even if they don't use the word truth, um, but explicitly or implicitly uh, are are claimed as truths, which is 
almost all conceptual frameworks that you'll find uh, in the Dharma and philosophy, etc. Um, poke enough at that and uh, whatever that conceptual framework is, and, and you will uncover contradictions uh, or unjustified, unjustifiable assumptions. So what happens when the whole way of holding ideas in relation to practice is, is looser, as I said, more elastic, um, not uh, so-called truth-based? And in all this, in this poesis and the art of it all, there are infinite possibilities. There is not a limit on the possibilities of experience of uh, the kinds of cosmos that we live in, of, of the experience, the perception and the sense of self, of the divine, of other, of the world, etc. So sure, we might make suggestions, we will make suggestions for different ideas, but, but really the idea is not to follow that too uh, rigidly. It's not uh, prescriptive, as I said, it's not formulaic. Except, as I said, generally as before, that this kind of imaginal enchantment, well, it involves the imaginal, it's not flat, it's more than the usual modernist perception of things. Uh, it invokes and involves divinity, whatever that may, might mean, all the possibilities that might mean, and it also has the wisdom of seeing image as image. But except for those generalities, there are infinite possibilities. Rather, within the circumscription of those generalities, there are infinite possibilities available to us as experience, as life-changing, uh, being-opening experience. I think it's from the Jewish Kabbalah. I'm not sure exactly who said it, but uh, there's a there's a a dictum that says, in the messianic eon, when the Messiah comes, each and every person will have her own perception of God. Each and every person will have her own perception of God. But Implicit in that, in that statement, and, and implicit even in, in the, the, the traditional Kabbalistic teachings, the messianic eon is really, I, I feel, implicit in those teachings. The messianic eon, uh, what they're calling that, is really a, a, an opening, a shifting and an opening of ways of looking. Shifting of the way of looking now, here. That is the messianic eon. It's something that happens in the heart, in the consciousness, in the soul. And then each and every person will have our own perception of God. I would actually make that plural. We have our own perceptions of God. There is this infinite possibility for all of us. So there's a what's usually considered a traditional religion with all its dogma, etc. Actually um, having a level of teaching in it that's completely radical in its openness, very postmodern, if you like, um, not at all dogmatic. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.